Malaka Mensa. So it's good to be back. Uh, I have the privilege of uh, finishing off the relationship series that we've been doing. We've been talking about the second commandment, which is... Fantastic, okay. This is the last Sunday that we're doing this and you guys don't get this one. We're in trouble, eh? <laughs> um, but uh, how many of you know that, that Jesus takes this commandment a step further in John chapter 13? John chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. At the end of the chapter, he declares rather radically, I give you a new commandment. What's that new commandment? Anybody know? Love one another. Thanks, Keith. You're the only one that knows the Bible. <laughs> that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay? So the second commandment is love one another as you love yourself. But Jesus takes this a bit step further. And he says rather radically. This is radical because the Jewish law has been set for 2,000 years. And here Jesus comes, declares in front of his disciples, I'm going to add to the law. I'm going to give you a new commandment. Not just that you love one another as I as you love yourself, but I want you to love your brother as I have loved you. So the the next question, the next logical question we got to ask ourselves is, well how did Jesus love us? And that's what we're going to discuss tonight. Sounds good? Fantastic. Okay, let's go to uh, James chapter 4 comes right off the James chapter 3. Fantastic. Hello, everybody. Okay, we're still awake. That's good. So James uh, is a great book. I, I really enjoy the James, uh, the, the, the James uh, theme. Um, although the, it, it seems on the surface to contradict what Paul is saying. And in fact, Martin Luther during the Reformation in the 1500s he led a, a mini campaign to have the book of James chucked out of the Bible. He called it the Epistle of Straw. He seemed to think that James contradicted uh, Paul because uh, Martin Luther grew up in a Catholic system which was very rigid and very law-focused. And uh, in his um, advanced studies at university, he came across Galatians, because in those times, to study the New Testament, you had to go to a, a university-like education system. So even for a priest in the Catholic Church, the New Testament wasn't available to you um, at your parish. You had to go and study to go and be, have access to the New Testament. And that's what Martin Luther did. And after years of being faithful and doing all the right stuff, he came to Galatians chapter 2 where Paul declares that it is not by works, but by faith that you are saved. And it blew his brain. <sighs> Rightly so. That's amazing. Right? It is not by works. You cannot work for your salvation. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's no deed that you can do that will outmatch the gravity of your sin. But should you put your hope and faith in Jesus and what he's done on the cross, the finished work of the cross, then salvation is offered to you freely by grace through faith. Amen. That's good news. And rightly so, Martin Luther 
left there and started a reformation in the church, which uh, launched the Protestant movement. Uh, um, as And if you don't know what that is, you're part of that movement. Basically, that we are saved by faith. And, here, and then Martin Luther comes to James like so many people after him. And he reads James chapter 2. And James says, you know what? Faith's great. Uh, but show me your faith by what you do. All right? You say you have faith. But let's see what you got. Don't tell me about it. And, and of course, this upset James. But of course, if we do a little bit of study, we find out. This is a whole other sermon in and of itself. I'm not going to go too much into that. But just on the foot of it, what we find out is that Paul and James are speaking to two different kind of audiences, right? So Paul is addressing the church of Galatia. And uh, what was going on there was that they had fallen into the trap of trying to earn their salvation, works-based faith. And so Paul addresses that, right? Hey, um, you, there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. Specifically, the thing that, that was going on was that they believed that you had to get circumcised. Thank the Lord we don't have to do any of that. All the men say amen, 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 oh, amen. And, uh, um, and instead, what Paul says is that it is by faith alone in Jesus that, that you can get saved. And, and he reinforces this by saying that even if an angel comes and preaches something different, you're to cast them out, right? This is the gospel. Don't mess with it. James, however, he's talking to a bunch of people. They know that they saved. There's nothing. We understand we're saved. It's great. Everything's good. We're going to heaven. Shop. Okay. But they believe that they don't have to change the way that they live their lives. They don't understand that they set apart to live for Jesus. And so James comes and dresses them and says, hey, you've, you've, you've taken that salvation and you're riding with it. Fantastic. Good for you. But part of being saved also means that the old has to go and the new has to come. Right? You've got to look a little bit different. Okay, if you still look like the world, if you smell like the world, talk like the world, you know, you know that saying, you look like a duck, you talk like a duck, you walk like a duck, probably a duck, you know, <laughs> right? There's got to be something different. And uh, the, the, best, the best explanation that I've heard is it's like a married couple. You know, I can say that I love my wife. She's amazing. She's fantastic. But, you know, she's been asking me for five days in a row just to pick my own underwear up off the floor and put it in the wash basket. You know, like maybe the first time there's an excuse, but after five days straight, we start talking about disrespect, right? It's, it's not nice. Nobody wants to do that. Uh, yes, Luke, you say you love me, but could you also just take care of the kids for once? Hey, Yes, Luke, you love me, but... Maybe you could make some food so I could also do my work, right? Yes, Luke, you say that you love me, but I'm not, I'm not seeing it, right? Does that make sense? In other words, the things that you say, you say you believe so is not as good an, uh, an indication as what you do, 
In fact, if, you, if I want to figure out what you believe, let me spend a week with you. Let me see how you act, and I'll tell you what you believe. Okay? Give me your monthly budget. I'll tell you what you believe. <laughs> okay, let's not go there. <laughs> right? Does the way that you, you conduct yourself... I've been spending too much time with Afrikaans people, sorry. In the way that you conduct yourself, in the way that you spend your money, in the way that you talk to your wife, your friend, your school friend, can people say, this is a child of God? Absolutely. Or is it constant fights, constant quarreling, constant chaos? Okay? So we're going we're gonna to read about that. So keep this in mind. Let's go to James chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 1. You guys can follow with me. So just remember now, James has just had a whole conversation with this group of people. It's not entirely clear who he's talking to, uh, but it's most likely the people that have just been exiled after Jerusalem. There was a big purge in Jerusalem of all the Christians, and these people fled Jerusalem and started to occupy neighboring settlements. And so James writes this letter to encourage them. These guys have been long-standing Christians. And in a sense, they, the, maybe they feel that they are justified in falling back into sin because life has been so hard. And James comes and whacks them and says, Hey, you have faith. Show me your faith by what you do. Okay? So let's read from verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels... And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Murder must have been a really bad problem in that time. I don't know what was going on. Um, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Okay? Who here in the room has asked God for something, right? And sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't, right? And, and Paul seems to suggest that the reason why you don't receive is because you're asking for yourself. Why is there constant fighting and chaos around you? Well, the problem is that there's the old person that hasn't quite been killed off yet. What do I mean by that? Okay, when you become a Christian, you put the old away, right? You go and get baptized. What do we do when we baptize, when we baptize people? We're symbolizing what goes on in the outside, that we identify with the death of Jesus. We put you under the water. Depending on how much of a sinner you're on, we run it through a formula and figure out how long you've got to stay underneath. It's a joke, okay? And then... And then we bring you up, and that represents your resurrection in Jesus, okay? But resurrection in Jesus is predicated on the fact that we're bringing up a dead person. And for some of us, we're still hanging on to that old life. You know, that, those days when we used to play first-team rugby at school, right? Those, those days when we were in Egypt and we had so much good food to eat. Remember those days, right? Sound familiar? Remember how I had it back then. You know, 
When I was not saved, I could sin in peace. <laughs> right? I could do what I want and not feel bad about it. <laughs> the problem is when you're a Christian, it's not that you stop sinning, it's just that you can't do it in peace anymore, you know? <laughs> why, why is this a problem? It's because there's a part of you that's still hanging on to that dead person, right? We're dragging dead people behind us. And what Paul's suggesting is that when, we, when we're asking, we're still asking on behalf of that dead person. We want that. If only I could have that. If only I had that business that that guy's got. If only I had that relationship that guy's got. Maybe I should have married my ex-girlfriend instead of my wife. Oosh. Hey, let's be real. That's what these, this is what people think. Okay, And the problem is that we're still yearning for Egypt. Meanwhile, God's got a promised land for us. And he's looking for men and women of God with prophetic insight to say, I, I understand that there's giants and stuff there. And it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to walk around a lot of cities and stuff. I don't know what that's about. But what I also see is produce. Milk, honey, land for the taking. Right? That's the kind of people that God's looking for. And instead, we're still stuck dragging dead people behind us. Right? Listen to what he says next in James. Um, verse 4. You adulterous people. Okay, that's quite harsh. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, that's a slap across the face. See, a lot of people, we have this uh, Tom and Jerry approach to theology, right? You know Tom and Jerry, the cartoon? Uh, maybe the Gen Zers don't know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> they try to reboot it, but it wasn't that great a movie. Anyway, so, you know, like Tom the cat is, is chasing off the Jerry the mouse and Tom's at this crossroad moment and all of a sudden an angel and a demon appear on his shoulders and they have a fight. And then whoever wins, that's what Tom does. You know, you know what I'm talking about? People kind of think like that. You know, God and Satan are busy. You know, Satan's got my one hand and God's got mine. They're trying to pull me in these different directions. And sometimes God wins and then I give money to the homeless. Yes, we won. Yeah. And then sometimes the devil wins and I say mean things to my mother. You know. Uh, whereas what James is pointing at and what is a biblical viewpoint is that man has set himself up against God. Through our sin... We have put ourselves against God. It is not, so yes, Satan is there, sure, okay? But it is us that have put it ourselves against God. And what God is saying is that either you're on my side or you're on the world's side, but there aren't two ways about this. You're either with me or you declare yourself my enemy, okay? And let me tell you, if you go against God, you're going to lose, that doesn't end well for you. 
And so you can either war for this Egypt thing, this, what this dead person wants, or you can start to fight and war and push and intercede for what God wants. But there's no two ways about this. There's no degrees of salvation. It's not like, hey, you know, Kaya, he's been a Christian for five years, so now he's a 15th degree saved person. Right? It doesn't work like that. He's either with God or he's against God. Okay? That's how this works. Some of you are asking, okay, so when does it get to the relationship brought? We're getting there. Okay. Just hang on here. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? How beautiful is that? Why is God so adamant about this? Why is he drawing such a line in the sand? It's not because he dislikes it. It's because he, he yearns with jealousy to be in relationship with you. And he will not share you with anybody else. It's not because he's, he's got a, a, an axe to grind with you. It's because he desperately desires to be in relationship with you. Verse 6, but he gives more grace, therefore it says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. All the sinners say, Amen. Oh, amen. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Okay, so maybe at this point you're feeling shucks. I'm, I'm screwing this up. I'm still dragging dead people behind me. Okay, I've got good news for you. Humble yourself and draw near to God. Because the solution isn't to start doing more stuff and being more apologetic. But if you humble yourself and go to God, there is grace, free grace on offer to you. But if you're going to stand there and go, no, 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 I know what I'm talking about. I can do it myself. You're in trouble. The point here, what Paul is trying to, trying to point out to the, uh, the people in James is don't do, this isn't about doing more stuff. Okay, he's clarifying what he's stating in James chapter 2, okay, when I'm saying, okay, faith, show me your works. He's not saying you've got to do more stuff. No, the, the works that I'm talking about, that is evidence of faith, is a people that goes to God. God, I need you. God, I'm messing up. I can't do it without you. It's a people that humbles themselves and says, God, I'm wrong. You're right. Please give me your grace. And what is grace? That's a whole sermon. But in a nutshell, grace is God's power to transform. Right? It's not something that covers over the holes. It's the power to get out of the hole that you're in. Okay? And God gives it freely to those who ask, who humble themselves and come to him. God, I need to transform my life. And I, I'm failing miserably at this. Okay. Here we go. No problem. God, my family's a mess. I'm trying to lead them, but I, I'm, I'm messing up. Everything I try and do just backfires. I need your help. Thank you, Lord, that where I'm weak, you are strong. Okay, Luke, 
No problem. Let's sort this out together. The people of God are not people that do extra stuff. We've just figured out that we need to go to God. We've just figured out that we can't do it. That's, that's the, the only thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian, right? We get this from the image of the cross. There are three crosses, right? There's two different kinds of people in the world, okay? But they're both on the cross. The one has just figured out that he deserves to be there. That's it. That's the only difference. I, he hasn't done anything special. He hasn't prayed a special prayer. He, he can't recite a special doctrine. He doesn't know the book of Romans off by heart. He's just aware of the fact that he deserves to be there and his Savior does not deserve to be there. That's the only thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian. That's it. Right? It's not the stuff that we do. It's not the, the churches that we plant, the people that we lead to salvation, the songs that we sing. The only difference between you and a non-Christian is that you know that you deserve the punishment that is, that is due you. And you know that your Savior who took your punishment does not deserve it. That's it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Right? Okay. Let's go to Romans chapter 14. Which comes right after Romans 13. Yay. We're going to get this, eh? That wasn't me. I put my bookmark in and then I took it out. So Romans chapter 14, now we've, uh, we've read from James, we're going to read from Paul, and Paul is also in Romans chapter 14 addressing how to deal with people that you disagree with, okay? It's people in the church, they're fighting about specific issues, okay, right? Should we, should we eat certain food? Should we not eat certain food? Should we observe the Sabbath? Should we not observe the Sabbath? Should we say Jesus or should we say Yeshua? Uh, I don't know. Take your pick, right? And uh, what Paul is going to talk about is that, no, 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 let's take a step back. This is not what it's about, okay? Because like James, Paul has come to the same conclusion through the power of the gospel that there's no specific thing that you can do. There's no day that you can observe there's no food that you can refrain from eating. There's no special name of Jesus that will invoke any good work that you can do that will earn your salvation. And so if we go down that road, we've missed it completely. There's no fight that you can have with your friend. There's no special person that you can marry that's going to save you. Okay, And this is really important, especially in the context of relationships, because there are many people, many young people, that will throw away the calling of God for the sake of a relationship. 
and they, they're just kidding themselves, right? You're just, you're just at church to get a relationship. You're not, you're not here to get a relationship with Jesus. Some of you might say, yeah, but then I might be single for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's better to go to heaven single. For reals. Oh, shucks. It's a hard life, eh? <laughs> I would just tell Kaya, say amen. The guy's like, I don't want to say amen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shucks. Okay, let's move on. We're going to read from Romans chapter 14, verse 16. Follow in the word with me. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. That's quite a lot loaded in one sentence. Okay, how would, in what way would you be letting somebody speak evil of what you think of as good? Okay, so you think your faith is good? Yes? Yes, that's not a trick question. Okay, you think following Jesus is good? Yeah, amen. That's good. Okay, great. Okay, how would you let somebody else, how would you let a non-Christian speak evil of your faith? By the way, you act, right? A study was done quite a number of years ago about, uh, with a whole bunch of non-Christians, and they asked them, uh, what do you find uh, most offensive about the Christian faith? Number one thing was hypocrisy with Christians. Okay? It wasn't that they had a problem with Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. They think, he's, they think he's great. As Gandhi once famously said, I'd be a Christian if it wasn't for his followers. Right? It's not Jesus people have, often have a problem with, although yes, sometimes they do. Absolutely. Sometimes people legitimately have a problem with the gospel. But very often they have a problem with you and me. Because they see we're saying one thing. Like James says, you say, you say, you're saying one thing, but you're doing something else. Okay? You're there on a Sunday worshiping Jesus, but I saw you there Saturday night out in town. You know, that kind of cliche thing? That's real. Okay? And this is what Paul's talking about. Don't let what you regard as being good be spoke about as evil. This isn't rocket science. In the way that you act and conduct yourself, and James just follows this on, in how you treat people around you, if I was to come to your house, I could say, Shup, this is a child of God. The way this person fathers his children, treats his wife, um, Alice is good. In other words, I saw him flip over the tables, and no, I'm joking, okay. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, in other words, it's not about the specific doctrines that you believe in. Although, just, to, just as a disclaimer, doctrine is very important. I'm not trying to discount it. Right doctrine is good, okay? But you can have the right doctrine and still condemn yourself, okay? You can, it's not about the specific names of Jesus that you invoke. It's not about, um, it's not about what day, if you're observing the Sabbath. It's not about if you, if you decided that you're not eating pork and now you're on the Daniel fast. Good for you, 
Okay? You can believe that. If you do that, do that unto the Lord, and God bless you. Okay, but what the kingdom of God is about is about righteousness. What is righteousness? In a nutshell? To be in right standing with God, okay? So the first thing that the kingdom of God is about is that in my conduct and the decisions that I make, I am pursuing to be in right standing with God. I want his approval over man's approval, okay? And the decisions that I make is based on that. I do this not because I think that it's wrong. I do this because I think it is approved by God. I know that it's approved by God because I read his word. Okay? So it's not that I'm making things up. It's that I read his word. I know that this is what God has convicted me about. This is what I must do. Okay? So when I get to Ephesians 5, I read this. It says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wife. Okay? So my conviction is that when I read that, I honor my wife, not because my wife wants it or because she likes it, but because this is what the Word of God is telling me to do. And I desire to be in right standing with God. Whether she submits to, be, to me or not is irrelevant. That's between her and God. She must stand in front of God one day and give account for what she's done. But my job is to honor my wife. And I make that decision because I want to be in right standing with God, not in right standing with my wife. What she does after that, that's on her. And my wife, bless the Lord, has come to that same conclusion. That she submits to me not because I honor her, but because this is what the word of God tells her to do. Okay? Does that make sense? And she's more afraid of God than she is of me. And so she'll do it. kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace. What do I mean by peace? Paul goes on to clarify this just now. We're going to read it. But peace with the people around me. Am I constantly trying to war with the people around me? Do I think that winning arguments wins people? Right? Or do I pursue peace? Do I have a good reputation? Okay? And it's not that I care what people think about me necessarily. But I do care what they think about when they think about God, if they see me. Does that make sense? I do care what you think when you think about God when you're in my presence. And so I will pursue peace with you so that by my action, you have nothing to point a finger at. Does that make sense? So yes, when I am with you, it's not that I care what you think about. I think about, I do care what God thinks about with me. But I do care what you think about God when you're with me. Okay? The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace and it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Is that my pleasure here on earth is found first and foremost in the Holy Spirit. My escape is not in series or movies or in pornography or in drinking, you know those, those Christians that just say they really love wine, but maybe they're borderline alcoholics? Woo! Praise Jesus. Right? Coffee culture people say amen. <laughs> I'm 
But Luke, you don't understand, like, we're just in love, you know. And she's, and she complete, and we've got a special song, you know. <laughs> yeah, you found some joy. I don't know if it's, that's in the Holy Spirit, though, eh? <laughs> And we, we trick ourselves, and we convince ourselves that, yes, we need this. But, but, in, but in actuality, if those things were taken away, we'd be a wreck. Why? Because our joy is not in the Holy Spirit. My one concern and my one desire is to be in the presence of God. That is what gives me joy. That is what I pursue. That's the high that I'm going for when I experience Him in His presence. Okay? Community is great, but I, I think to a certain degree the, the topic of community has become a bit of an idol. Because if I was to drop you in the middle of the Karoo and say, go plant a church there, how many of us would survive in isolation? Joy in the Holy Spirit or joy in a bunch of people? Right? Does that make sense? Community is great and it is good. It is good. Absolutely. We need community, but we need Jesus more. Okay? Because I, I, I would like to be like Paul who can go off into Asia by himself and go preach the gospel. What is he going, oh man, I just, I just wish I had a church family, you know. All there is here is an Inkhia church. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Amen. I'm just falling apart, Luke, because it's like I just can't find... Is the Spirit of God not within you, right? Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Do not for the sake of a relationship destroy the work of God. Do not for the sake of a high destroy the work of God. Wine destroy the work of God. <laughs> right? It's not worth it. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul throws out this really random sentence right at the end. Okay? And it's a really deep sentence. What he's talking about here, once again, it's not about the stuff that you're doing. Hopefully we do the stuff in faith with God, according to God. Right? I want to do this. Uh, it's my desire to please God by what I'm doing. Okay? But if you're feeling condemned about it, then don't do it. Then don't do it. And don't do it if it's going to cause somebody else to stumble. Okay? But, if, but what we do do, we must do it in faith. And if we don't do it in faith, then we are sinning. Okay, so the traditional definition of sin has always been that it's to miss the mark. Right? We, we shoot in a direction and we miss it. We, we aim for God's perfect law and we're just off 
That's the definition of sin. And it's a good definition of sin. But Paul takes this to another level. He says it's not just that you, you miss the mark, you don't reach God's standards, but the reason for the things that you're doing, even the good things, is off. You don't do them in faith. Faith in what? Faith that, in the context of this passage, faith that the things that I'm doing are bring, putting me in right standing with God, are putting me in the peace with the people around me, and putting me in a position where I'm experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So every now and then, I have a conversation with this young person, and they go, um, Luke, is it okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend before we get married? That's the wrong question. Let's go to Romans 14. Do you have faith that sleeping with your girlfriend is the right thing to do? That's a different conversation. Do you have faith that sleeping with your girlfriend before you get married is going to put you in right standing with God? That you're going to experience peace with the people around you? That you're going to experience the joy of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you'll experience a kind of joy <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> right? But is this peace that is eternal? Is it an everlasting, eternal joy? Is it right standing with God? No, and it's ludicrous when we talk about it like that, and rightly so. Does it matter to you that the things that you do put you in right standing with God? That's a different question we also got to ask. Luke, is it wrong for me to be in a relationship with this person? Wrong question. Do you have the faith that in a relationship with this person you will better pursue the kingdom of God than without them? If the answer to that is yes, go for it. Do it. Okay? Stop mucking about and get married. If no, then no. Because my desire, my hope, is that I can stand in front of God and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, yes, Luke, you and a whole bunch of relationships. High five, my man. Yeah, but Luke, what, you know, what, what about, you know, in Romans 1, it says that uh, homosexuality, homosexuality is an abomination. Is it really wrong? That's the wrong question. Do you have faith that if you pursue this lifestyle, you'll be in right standing with God? That you'll have peace, that you'll experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not about your, what you want. Okay? So let's go back to uh, John chapter 13. Jesus gives this radical new command. And he says this, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's not just that you've got to love people as he loved us. But people are going to know that you're a Christian. They're going to see your faith by this. The work, essentially, that James is referring to that is going to be evidence of your faith is how you love people, how he loved us. How did he love us? Number one, 
sacrificially on the cross. Philippians 2 says that he was obedient, even obedient to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, he has the name that is above every other name. If you want to love people as Jesus has loved you, you have to put aside what you want, the things that you think you need, the relationships that you think that you need, and go, what is the will of God? Because this is essentially what it boils down to. I think, I think if we're going to love people how Jesus loved us, in Luke 22 verse 42, I think we found the most profound way in which Jesus loved us. He says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's in the garden of Gethsemane the day before he's about to be crucified. He's about to be arrested. Jesus knows what's about to, to happen to him. He knows what he's going to go through. If you were at last week's sermon where Riku preached, he gave a very graphic description of what Jesus went through. Jesus knew that he was going to go through that. And he's so stressed and, dare I say, anxious about it that Scripture tells us that he starts to sweat blood. He's going there and he's like, oh, shucks. And he asks God, think about this for a second. He asks God, if it's possible that I don't have to do this, can you take it away from me? But then he follows up and he says, but Father, not my will be done, your will be done. I remember reading this, the first question that came to my mind was, hang on, you know, we says, Jesus loves all the little children. But here Jesus is asking not to die for us, essentially. That's what he's asking. We've got to deal with this. Okay? Does he still love me? And it dawned on me that the love that Jesus showed for me was not just on the cross, but was that he chose God's will over his own will. And so when I love my wife, when I love the people around me, it's not that I'm loving them in accordance with what I want. I'm loving them in accordance with, what, with the will of God. This is what God commands me. God wants me to honor my wife. That is what I will do. If you've been married, sometimes you don't always want to honor your spouse. If you've had kids, sometimes you want to strangle them. Oh, yes, what a great picture you drew on the seat of my car. Right? See, here's the thing. Well, this is what this is what John uh, what John teaches us. He says God is love. Okay? And sometimes we choose against what God wants. And we think that we're choosing love. How can we choose against God who is love and love somebody? If the will of God is for me to conduct myself in a, in a specific way. If the will of God is for me to be in a heterosexual way, I can never love this person in any other way. If I choose against the will of God, I cannot love this person. To choose God is to love. 
This is what this if if we're going to look at how Jesus loved me and I want to love other people as he loved me, I choose God over even my children and my spouse. It looks like this. We we my wife and I we felt the call to foster two kids. And we spoke to our accountability buddies about it. We spoke to my parents about it. And uh, the number one question that came up, and it's a very good question. It's not a bad question. It's a question that I've got to face and have an answer for. The number one question was, what about your own kids? What if something happens? And I remember this passage. Okay? Intuitively, as a father, I want to pick the safety of my own kids above anybody else. But I know what God is telling me to do. And so the best way that I can love my own children is to do what God says, is to be obedient to the will of God, not to try and hang on to my kids and put them in this glass bubble. Right? The best, thing I, the best outcome that I can hope for for my children as a father is to demonstrate obedience to God. The best outcome that you can hope for in your interpersonal relationships, your romantic relationships, one day, hopefully, all the single people say amen. The best outcome that you can hope for is to be obedient to the calling of God on your life and to His will as demonstrated in the Word of God. That is the best. Anything else is a perversion of love. 